Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 99. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, one of the easiest ways you can support the authors and podcasters you love is to write a review. It's free, it's quick, it's easy, but it makes a big difference to us. If you enjoy this podcast, I would appreciate it so much if you would review it on iTunes. Your review makes it so much easier for book lovers to find our show. If you enjoyed my book, Reading People, How Seeing the World Through the Lens of Personality Changes Everything, would you take a minute and leave a review on a site like Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or Goodreads? Your fellow readers rely on your reviews to decide what to read and listen to next, and that's why writing a quick review means so much to your favorite authors and podcasters. Thanks in advance for those ratings and reviews. I appreciate them so very much. This week, I'm chatting with Caroline Weaver, also known as the Pencil Lady, because by day she owns and operates CW Enterprise, a shop dedicated exclusively to pencils and pencil-related goods in Manhattan's Lower East Side. My husband Will and I visited her shop when we were in New York in June. We totally fell in love, and the end result is this episode, and also kids who are a whole lot happier with the erasers they're using for their schoolwork these days. In today's episode, Caroline and I talk about the pencil business, and then we dive into Caroline's reading life. Caroline loves contemporary literary fiction, although that's not all she reads. She loves when books hit her on an emotional level, especially when a book can make her feel emotions she can't even describe. She loves seeing writers doing interesting things on the page and has developed her own personal strategy she relies on for finding books that are right for her when she's browsing in her local bookstore. This episode also veered into areas I wasn't expecting. We get into beautiful mail art, the importance of a nice handwritten letter, and the perfect pencil for doing the crossword. Let's get to it. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. When my husband and I visited New York back in June, I asked my readers and podcast listeners, tell me what I can't miss in the city. Because every time I come home, someone always comments right away, like, did you go to, you know, whatever great shop was right around the corner from your hotel that you just didn't know about? And that's always really disappointing. So I tried to ask in advance. And so many people said to go check out CW Pencil Enterprise, which I had never heard of, but we popped in your shop and were so wowed. So to many people, you are the pencil lady. Yeah, it is. And that that it just kind of happened by accident. It kind of was a joke. We called ourselves that and then it caught on and that's that we should probably be printing that on our on our business cards. But um, yeah, we are the pencil ladies. I am chief pencil lady. So it's 2017 and it's the digital era and print is dying and you have a store in New York City that sells actual pencils. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's a little bit crazy that that can even be a thing um, in 2017. But here we are. How did that happen? Um, it's it's something that kind of happened without me even realizing it was happening. I have always had a really, really fond appreciation for woodcase pencils and collected them and learned about them and used them most like almost exclusively in my daily life. And then one day when I was in college, this just kind of of course I was in college, I was having the same sort of struggles that I think most people in college do where you're like, well, what am I going to do with my life? Like nothing, nothing's going to work out. And I was really having a hard time figuring out like what things were important to me as an adult. And 
one day I just kind of realized like, wow, like there's this object that's been in my life for as long as I can remember. It's something that I know an incredible amount uh, about. And it's a thing that probably is more important to me than any other like things that exist. And I got this idea in my head that maybe one day when I had my career, I'd been successful, I would retire and just be an old lady in a tiny, tiny shop that only sells pencils. And I could just talk to my customers and share stories all day and um, talk about history and um, convince people that pencils are really amazing tools um, that are still very valuable to us. And then I moved to New York after college and got a job and um, had a really rough first winter here. And I just kind of had a moment when I thought, like, why am I waiting? Like, why don't I just do this now? I had already thought about it so much that I really just I really had a plan. I really knew what I was doing. And so I just quit my job one day and did it. Do you have a special pencil memory from your childhood? Um, I do. I, I mean, really like the one moment when I realized like, wow, this is a thing that I love was when I was maybe about, about six years old and my mother left to go to Italy on um, a vacation with her parents, her parent, her dad's Italian. And she came back and gave me a set of Caran d'Ache colored pencils that she'd bought on her trip. And they were in a tin that has wildflowers on the cover. And it, it, they're, they're beautiful. They were by far the nicest thing that I owned. And as a kid, I remember thinking like, wow, these are so beautiful and they're so exotic and they're so different to anything that I've used before. And um, it was the, the first kind of memory as a child of owning these pencils of really feeling like, wow, like this is a thing that is important to me that I'm going to take care of because I care about it. And, um, and now I still have them. There's one pencil missing and the rest are quite short, but, um, I do still keep them prominently displayed on the top of my desk. That actual particular type of pencil, um, isn't available in the U S it's called the Prismalo pencil. It's not available. We sell it in a limited edition for the company's hundredth anniversary, but there's some sort of like copyright issue with Prismacolor. So they're not actually allowed to sell that particular pencil in the U.S. Um, but we sell comparable ones by the same brand that come in the same sort of like 18 pack tin. They don't make the same tin with the wildflowers on it anymore, which is devastating to me because that would be like the number one pencil that I would sell if they were available. Um, yeah, it's a, they're really special. And I've had so many customers, I've shared the story a few times and I've had so many customers send messages or like Instagram direct messages to be like, oh, like this is the pencil I remember from my childhood too. Like it seems like this like tin of Caran colored pencils is like an internationally beloved um, pencil that a lot of other people kind of adored as a child. So it's nice to be able to like share that with other people. That's amazing. So you have this memory of really discovering what a pencil can be as a child. What's it like for you watching people walk into your store and I would imagine discovering pencils for themselves day after day. Yeah, it's it's the most gratifying thing. That is by far my favorite part about my job. And I these days we're so busy and we do so much online fulfillment and there's so much other stuff to do that I don't actually get to spend a lot of time in the actual shop. Um, I know the day that you came in was my one day a week that I get to actually be there for the entire day on my own. And that's my favorite day of the week because I don't have anything annoying to worry about. I don't even really look at my emails. I just sit there and I talk to customers and make recommendations and tell stories. And it's the most amazing thing to have somebody come in who doesn't really like who's interested, but doesn't necessarily care that much or know that much. 
And so I kind of take it as my job to blow their minds and kind of convince them that these things are really, really amazing, amazing tools as like kind of like the original communication technology and also like as a thing that I think is still very relevant today. And so we we have a testing station in our shop where you can sit down at your own little desk and try out every single thing that we sell. And so it's so, it's so fun for me to kind of like ask a couple questions, decide what I think the person's going to like and set them up with like all the things for them to try and to have them try them and just be like, wow, like th- I never thought a pencil could be like this. And the storytelling thing is a huge part of it too. Like there's so, pencils have been around for so long and there's so many of these businesses that still make them are about a hundred years old, if not older, and are still run by like the original families. Um, and there's just so much content there. I mean, I wrote wrote a whole book about it and that wasn't even everything. When customers come through your shop doors, what are they looking for? Is that a terrible question? Oh no, it's, it's I think it's a, it's a good question because I think, um, a lot of people kind of try to guess like what our what our customer is and what our demographic is. But the great thing about it is that I can't even like generalize that because there's so many different customers who come through our doors. We get a lot of a lot of tourists who heard about the shop as being like a kind of like off the beaten path, like quirky New York thing. And then we got a lot of a lot of families, a lot of just like local families who come in on the weekend as like their outing because it's fun for everybody. And all the kids like try things out and pick out new school pencils and the parents like ask for a lot of advice. And that's really fun. We have a lot of people who come in looking for things for very specific projects or like women who it's always like older women who come in and are really, really, really into crossword puzzles and need to just like find like the most perfect pencil for doing the Sunday Times crossword puzzle. What is the most perfect pencil for doing the Sunday Times crossword? Well, there's not really one. There are maybe three that are really popular. We actually made a whole sampler set that's just crossword puzzle recommendation pencils. There are six in the set, um, so you can try them all out. But the there's one called the Craft Design Technology Pencil, which is made by a Japanese company called Camel. And they're known for this like this patented ferrule-less eraser. A ferrule is the thing that holds an eraser onto a pencil. And theirs just kind of like plug into the top. So they're very minimalist. And they write really dark and really smooth, but they're not at all smudgy. And the eraser is very good. The crossword people really want a good eraser. If you're using a pencil instead of a pen, you're using it because it's erasable. And so... Um, that's when we really have to rack our brains about the best pencils with erasers on them. It's usually like the Japanese ones. There's one called the Palomino HB that's really awesome too. Um, Tombow 2558 and B, which is one grade harder than a number two. That's a great one as well. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's always a fun one to do. Or like we get a lot of people who are just frustrated with pencils, like people who are left-handed who um, just are discouraged. They feel like they can't use the nice pencils because they just don't work for them. And so it's our job to kind of prove them wrong and introduce them to things that they've never tried before. I'm a righty. I don't even understand what the challenge would be to a lefty writing with a pencil. Help me out here. It's it's the smudginess thing. It's the fact that you're dragging your hand across the paper over what you've written. And so um, like a re- just like a regular run of the mill, like number two pencil is not going to work because it's going to get gross and smudgy. And then you end up with a big mess or a lot of left handed people have gotten used to kind of turning their paper and writing kind of like upside down um, to avoid that. It's, it's the same issue with pens. Like if the pen doesn't dry fast enough, um, then you end up with ink all over your hand. Um So it's our job to kind of find pencils that are either slightly harder but still feel really nice or ones that um, have the ones that are a little bit more high tech. A lot. Again, a lot of the Japanese ones, they use like waxes and polymers in them to make them a little bit 
a little bit different is a pencil. A pencil generally is just made out of um, at the very base level, clay, graphite and water. That's really it. Um, and so the hardness depends on how much clay there is versus how much graphite there is. The harder it is, the more clay there is and the less graphite there is. So it's going to be less smudgy. So it sounds like when people say they don't like pencils, it sounds like oftentimes they don't just like the pencils they're using. Yeah, they just don't know good pencils. And that's that's part of the reason why I, when I opened the shop, I mean, when I opened the shop, I couldn't really do a lot of market research because there wasn't anything quite like it. But that's the one thing that really like kept me encouraged was the issue that like in the U.S. especially to buy pencils, you go to an office supply store or something. And there like you have like Ticonderoga, you have like your like store branded like Staples brand pencils and then maybe like a couple of options from other brands. But the type of pencils that you generally find like at a Target or Staples or Walmart, like they're they're not great pencils. They're they're just yeah, they're as far as like pencils on a worldwide scale, they're like definitely the like lower level. And I think people don't realize that there are alternatives, that there are still really awesome pencils that aren't expensive and that do a better job and are actually pleasurable to use and also often have really awesome stories behind them. And so that's that's really at the, at the very core of this business. Like that's why that's why a shop like this exists because we we've kind of taken it on ourselves to to show people and expose them to really amazing pencils that actually serve their purpose as best they can. Are you particular about your paper as well? A little bit, um, especially because I use pencil like 95% of the time. Not all papers are great. Like some, some that are like, for example, like Rhodia paper is far too smooth. It turns into like a super smudgy mess. With, with pencil, you need a paper that's like that that's smooth, but has a little bit of tooth to it. It's definitely, it's not, yeah. I mean, pencil users aren't as picky about paper as like, say like people who use fountain pens regularly, because that's much more challenging to find the right paper. But I, um, my at home, anything that I keep in like a proper notebook is kept in an Emilio Braga notebook. That's what I'm using as my new journal. And they're really beautiful, hardbound notebooks from a company in Portugal that I think is nearly a hundred years old. And they hand make everything. They make all the notebooks that I order, like made to order. So I get to pick all the colors and they're really, really beautiful. And they're, yeah, they're gorgeous and they're affordable for like a really nice notebook. The paper is like the perfect color of off-white and it's unlined, but it comes with a really good guide sheet, um, which is really helpful. And yeah, they're gorgeous. They're really, really gorgeous. And they have like a really like, they call it their cloud print. It's kind of similar to like a composition notebook print on the front. And then they're cloth bound down the spine in the corners. And they always come with these like really nostalgic looking like um, red edged labels that you can glue to the front of it. They're really wonderful. Okay, two things. I want one of those in my life right away. But I think I'd be terrified to get started with it. Do you, when you're using really nice supplies, do you personally struggle with putting them to use? How do you get yourself to jump in? I always had an issue with that until I owned a shop that sells those things and I'm so surrounded by it. I just don't, I'm not as precious about it anymore, but um, it's challenging, especially with notebooks. Like it's so easy to buy them and love them and hoard them and then be scared to use them, especially ones that aren't perforated or aren't spiral bound because you can't really tear a page out. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it, it is a struggle. I think like I, I used to worry too much about what I was going to use it for, um, and I'd wait until I had like a really, really, really specific purpose for it. But those are, those are the type of decisions that I feel like were never useful because I, then I would decide like, okay, I'm going to keep this specific type of journal. And then I'd get like a week into it and 
I decide like, well, this isn't really working for me. And then I have this like notebook that's been used that I'm afraid to use for anything else because it's already been designated for something. Um, it's a challenge. I think that people need to be a little bit more more free about the way that they use their supplies, even like pencils. Like we get a lot of people who are like, oh, this is too pretty. I don't want to sharpen it. But uh, we just have to remind ourselves that at the at the end of the day, these are utilitarian objects. They're meant to be used. That is their sole function is to be used. Um, you're kind of defeating the purpose by just keeping it. Might as well use it, even if it's a mistake. At least it's had some sort of life beyond just living on a shelf. I would love to back up for a minute. Can you tell me more about the Letter Writing Society? Yeah, I mean, the uh, so I have a friend named Rhea Abramson who actually does a greeting card subscription called Mail, Mail More Love. And I met her through Instagram um, a little over a year ago. I guess it was probably about a year and a half ago. And um, we were doing, we'd been commissioned to do some letter writing workshops for someone else. And we were doing those and she helped me with that. And then she got this idea to start a New York City Letter Writer Society Um with just other people that she's met on Instagram. Most of this just came out of Instagram. And so we started meeting up monthly for like three hours and she would set up all these great supplies and we would just sit there and we didn't even talk that much because we're so like engrossed in what we're doing, but we would just sit there and write letters to our pen pals and just various people, whoever we're writing to at the moment. Um, and it was really wonderful to kind of have a community like that, but Rhea moved, temporarily moved away. So it's been put on hold a little bit. Once the new shop is open, I think we're going to be the new hub for the letter writing society, which I'm really excited about. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. It sounds like it. Is there a place where listeners can go and see examples? Um, looking at Rhea, Rhea's Instagram is actually a really good place to kind of spy on that. She's so well connected in that world. Her Instagram is devoted diarist and, um, yeah, like some, of, I, I end up getting a lot of those in my suggested feed and I can just go for hours just looking at other people's letters, just the way that they get really into hand lettering or like collaging things on their envelopes or people get really, really creative about their stamp placement and the vintage stamps that they're using. Um, there's a huge market for vintage stamps for people who aren't collectors, but who are people who just like to send really, really beautiful letters. Um, I keep a binder of stamps organized, um, and I end up like putting way too much postage on everything just because I want it to look a certain way. If listeners are thinking, I would love to write a letter, but I have no idea who to send one to. Who do you recommend? That's a good idea. Um, just send it to a friend that you haven't talked to for a while or somebody who lives really far away or just somebody you admire whose address you can manage to hunt down or send a letter to your grandma or... Yeah, I mean, I, I have a couple of pen pals. I have, I have quite a few customer pen pals who I've continued relationships with. But I also have a couple of pen pals who are just like friends of friends who I met and really, really like and who are people who I kind of thought like, okay, this person will probably be a really great pen pal. And sometimes I just send a letter just being like, hi, like, it was really nice to meet you. Will you be my pen pal? It feels like a really juvenile thing to do, but it's, I've never been turned down. So um, I think it's good. I made some of my best pen pals that way. Um, I find it especially useful for like friends who live in other countries, because I think especially when you've got a time difference, you don't communicate the same way that you do with your friends who are in your city or at least like in on your side of the country. And so it's a nice kind of like way of slow communication because those are friends who I don't feel like I need to hear from them every week. It's I'd much rather receive a really great letter like once every month or two. It's just much it's just a much more thoughtful form of communication. Um, 
But yeah, I think it's important to, and I, I don't get responses to everything. I send letters to people who never respond to me, but they always appreciate it. It's um, always, always a, a generous gesture, I think. Yes. And you're so right. Nobody hates getting a handwritten letter. So we do live in an age where digital tools are everywhere and really valuable, but the tactile is so important these days. And a lot of what you're saying, I really connect to as a reader, what you're saying about the pencil shop, so much is true about the bookshop. Print editions of books are never going out of style. We have heated debates sometimes among readers about how you can drag their print books out of their cold, dead hands. They are never switching to a Kindle or a Nook. So your decision to go to remain analog in many ways, is that by nature? Is that by choice? It absolutely is. I mean, I, I'm a visual person. I also like need, I need these objects to be physical. It's the only way that my brain connects with it properly. I, I need to be able, I need, I need to be able to feel the thing that I'm putting my words down with. I need to be able to have some sort of physical connection to that. And I feel the same way about books. I don't own a Kindle. I'm planning on never owning a Kindle. I, um, got upset with my mom when she bought one, um, for herself. I, I feel like I like with, and the same thing goes with pencils and books and pens or notebooks or whatever analog tools you're using. Like if you have a completely different experience with it, if it is a physical object that you can hold and you can smell and you can touch and you can see it's, it's not really comparable. I don't, I don't know what it's like to read a book electronically. And I don't think I really want to because I, I'm, so accustomed to having it all not just as something to consume but as a really beautiful object um and that's where i find a lot of value is in the beauty of objects so we're talking about the tactile experience of of reading and also how they're beautiful objects so i'm dying to know do you write in your books no I don't write in my books. If I if I'm if I'm like researching something for a project or for something I'm writing or something like that, like that's mostly. Um, I mean, that's like when I when I wrote my own book, I did I did write in my books or at least highlighted things and flagged things and kind of tore them apart. But they're all books that I have that I made sure I had two copies of because the one that I keep on my shelf, the one I loan to my friends, the one that I want to keep forever is the one that doesn't have anything written in it. I, um, I really, I really don't write in them because quite, I don't read books twice. Um, so it's, I don't, I just don't think it's for me, at least it's not really productive. I don't think it's something that I would actually reference from a practical, practical perspective. It's not really something I would do. I keep notes in my planner. If I, I have a couple of pages for books, I have a list of books that I have read this year. And then I have a page for books that I want to buy to read this year. And then I have just a couple of random pages for just whatever notes I need to write down while I'm reading. Caroline, what place does reading have in your life right now? I mean, it's, it's probably the, besides writing letters, I would say reading is the other thing that I do the most in my spare time. Um, I, I find it to be really the only way that I can properly wind down. It's often as well, like the only way that I can fall asleep at night. Um, as if I read myself to sleep and I, li I live a very stressful lifestyle. I work more than a full-time job running this business. And so, um, I think that, I think that as I got busier running this business, the more I started reading because it was like, it was the one thing I could do to go home every night and not think 
about work and not think about what's going on in my personal life. It's the only way that I feel like I can truly 100% just escape all of that for a little bit. Has that has that always been the way you approached reading or is that new in the stage as opposed to say when you were 12? When I was very young, I read a lot of books. My mom's a big reader and was always a huge proponent for like reading actual books and supporting bookshops and always had a ton of books in the house. She has really different tastes in books than I do. And I started to realize that kind of like when I was in probably like eighth or ninth grade, um, when I started to kind of discover books on my own and understand kind of what what things I liked and what things I didn't like. I think once I really committed to figuring out my taste in books, that's when I started to really like reading again. And um, when I went to college, I read a lot, mostly because I had a long commute to get to school. So that was that was a huge factor that I just needed something to do. And then that's when I kind of like, I feel like I've had a couple of moments where I've kind of like re-fallen in love with books. Um, and even now living in New York, I don't, I ride my bike to work. It takes me 10 minutes. I don't have a commute every day, but, it, and that's, that's kind of hard because I know a lot of people like that's when they do most of their reading, especially living here. And now it's just a little bit different because for the first time in my life, I've really had to like make a conscious effort to make the time to do it. What helps you remember to do that? I think like, I don't know. I always have an ambitious list of books that I want to read and I have very strict rules about like how many books I'm allowed to hoard. Um, <laughs> my unread book stack, I try to keep to a minimum. So I think I get a little bit competitive with myself and try to set deadlines. Like I want to finish this book by the end of the week so I can buy a new one like that, that sort of thing. I think like keeping that, keeping like, that excitement, I think is really important, kind of like giving myself an incentive to continue reading because there's so many other great books that I've looked up and that I really want to read. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I, I think it's just not right now. It's just like so much a part of my life that it's not really something I think twice about. I've been trying in the past couple of years really to like watch less TV and to spend my time at home, like actually sitting in a part of my living room that I don't normally sit in or like going outside and just like sitting, just sitting and like being there and just reading, turning off my phone and just like letting that be what I do for two hours. And it feels like a real luxury sometimes. And that's something that I really love about it. So you mentioned that you've fallen in love with reading re-fallen in love with reading several times over your life. When Do you remember the last time that happened? Um, the last time, I mean, when I was, I don't even remember what I was reading in college. Honestly, I went to art school and was always trying to, I tried to kind of like pick books that were going to be something I enjoyed, but also something that was helpful towards whatever it was I was working on. But I, I remember like the one most like distinctive memory that I have is when I was, um, the summer before I went to college, I was at home for the summer. It was the first summer that I had spent really like doing nothing in a very, very, very long time. I didn't, I didn't even have a job. I wasn't really doing anything. And I tried to raid my mom's bookshelf to find new things to read. And I wasn't really like finding anything that I hadn't already read or that I was really interested in. And so I went to a bookstore and I ended up buying a heartbreaking work of staggering genius by Dave Eggers. And I bought the unbearable lightness of being by Milan Kundera. And those are both like pretty, pretty dense books They're for especially a person who at the time wasn't really reading regularly. It was a real challenge for me to get through those books. And I think it took me about a month to read them both. And I read them back to back. And I remember both of them for very different reasons were books where I felt like I learned something about myself and I felt like I like it, they made me feel emotions that I hadn't felt in a really long time. 
because the for various reasons because their characters were relatable because um, the language in with, in which they were written was something that was had a really profound impact on the way that I read the books and um, yeah those are kind of the two that I credit for getting me like back into reading as a young adult and from there I started just kind of like and I, I do even now. When I'm shopping for books, and I, I very rarely do research ahead of time, I just go to the bookstore. I'm like, okay, well, I have a list of things I want, but I'm just going to look around and see what else looks good. And I um, pay a, a, an incredible amount of attention to the um, endorsements on the back. Like if another writer who I really love says it's a great book, I'll almost always buy it. And so I've just kind of built up an arsenal of people I trust whose opinions I trust. And that's the thing when I'm looking at a book that I know nothing about. Like that's the thing that I look for most. Has that rule served you well? Yeah, it has. Um, that's, yeah, that's really the main way I discover new writers and new books is by like, but kind of following that rule. And it definitely has served me well. I don't, I don't think I've been disappointed in a long time. A lot of times I'm disappointed when I buy a book that like I, that I just like break all my rules in buying. And then I'm like, Oh, like, I guess I should have like tried to learn a little bit more before I decided to commit. But, um, it took, yeah, I do occasionally read books and buy books that I take home and like an hour into reading it think like wow I really made a mistake I don't love this book it's a terrible feeling and I but I feel I feel a great amount of relief for having like decided having figured out that it's okay to not like a book it's okay to not finish a book um I value my time reading so much like I'm not going to spend my I'm not going to spend seven hours finishing a book that I don't love um and I've been proven wrong. There's some books that have a really like really difficult start that I've committed to and ended up really, really loving. I felt that way when I read A Little Life when it first came out. That was a really hard book to get into and it's massive. And I had it in hardback and I was carrying it around with me every day. And I was just so mad at that book for so long. But I decided like I'm reading this book. It's giant. Like I'm not carrying it around for nothing. There's I think that I got really stubborn about that one. But I ended up finishing it and loved it. I was sitting in a sushi restaurant at lunch alone when I finished it and was just like sobbing onto my plate um, and came back to work and was just really distracted for the rest of the day. It was an, an amazing book and I'm glad I committed to it. But every now and then, like I do find a book where I just start it. I'm just like, nope, not happening. I can't finish this book. Well, I can't wait to hear more about your favorites and not so favorites. Are you ready to dive in? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, here's how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you hate, and what you've been reading lately, and we'll talk about what you should read next. Let's start with your favorites. What's the first book you love? The first one is um, The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, which is also by Milan Kundera. Um, I, when I was in college, after I realized that I really liked him, I started just kind of like every time I saw a book I hadn't heard of that he'd written, and he's written a lot of books, I just started collecting them. And this one... Um, it takes place in the Czech Republic in the I think the seventies, and I happened to be reading it while I was visiting Prague for the first time. Um, and this was, well, it was almost accidental. And then I got there, I was I got there and realized like, oh, like it makes so much sense that I'm reading this book right now. And I, this was years ago when I was in college, and it was during that like crazy volcano eruption in Iceland. And I ended up getting stuck there for like a full week longer than I was supposed to be there. Wait, are you serious? I, yeah, I was stuck in Prague during the volcano. I couldn't get back to London. I got stuck in Prague after 9-11 and couldn't get back to America for 10 days. It's a wonderful okay. place to be stuck in. I really enjoyed my time there. I, um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't mad about it at all. I eventually got a bus ticket back. I took a bus all the way back to London. 
um, from Prague. It was really stressful. But um, yeah, I, re- I read that book in Prague. And I just that I think that was that more than any other book of his that I'd read was the book when I realized like, okay, like I, I love I love this author, I could read every single thing that he's written. And um, really, really get into it. And I've, I've read I've read it said about him that his work is almost like considered it's it almost really feels just like one huge giant body that's kind of like one giant tangled up story. And I, I believe that it's um, that's how I read it. And um, yeah, I'm still reading my way through his bibliography. There are so many um, I kind of probably like two a year or so I try to I try to read them. But that's I have my bookshelf divided by author and that's probably my thickest section. Um, what is it about Kundera that keeps you coming back? Um, I think I mean, there's there's always a little bit of like a historical or political undertone to all the stories that he writes. But um, his characters are so, so complex. But the way that he writes them is in a way where I kind of feel like I'm reading about a person who I know. And I think like, especially when I was younger and first started reading him, I think that's what really like, really struck me. And that's what kind of drew me in was that I felt like I was I felt like I was part of these families or part of these groups of people that I was reading. And I was also learning while I was reading about it. I was learning about other places in the world. I was learning about other things that had happened. And um, I think they're just kind of like the perfect combination of being something really fun to read, something really impactful, something that always makes me feel something. And they, yeah, they always have some sort of cultural, historical, political undertone that I really appreciate, especially as a person who's not a really big fan. I'm not a huge fan of historical fiction. I like it in small doses and as kind of like the secondary part of a story. But um, yeah, I think like, I think he just kind of combines all, all the tiny things that I like about books into one style. I like it. Caroline, what's your next favorite book? The other one that I really, really love is um, This Book Will Save Your Life by A.M. Holmes. Um, And she's another one of those writers who I really trust. If she endorses anything, I will I will probably buy it if I come across it in a bookshop. Um, and I, I loved this book. I devoured it. I read it when I first moved to New York and I think I read it like in a day and a half just because it's the only thing I wanted to do. Um, and I think what, what I loved about it was that the, the protagonist in this book is this like older man, he's divorced, he has a lot of problems and that's like the opposite of what I am. And I'm not an older man who's been divorced. I know nothing about divorce really. And, um, it was the first book that I remember reading it and like feeling like, I and initially feeling like, okay, I cannot relate to this character at all. And then kind of falling in love with him um, while reading this book. Um, And I remember feeling like this guy is really, really fascinating. I want to know him, even though he's not a real person. Um, And that's, yeah, it's an awesome feeling. And and her books are just really fun to read. And um, yeah, I've, I've read a few of them. Again, that's another one that I feel like eventually I'll eventually get to the point where I've read every single book she's written and I have nothing left. Um, but yeah, I really loved that one. I loaned it to a friend and never got it back, um, which is kind of sad. I have a hard time not feeling sad about those things, even though that's the way it goes. That sounds really interesting. I have not read that one, but I've heard, I've heard it compared to La La Land. Is that strange? Just how L.A. is very much a character in that novel. You know what? I thought about that when I saw La La Land for a brief moment. And I think I like I don't have a. have only been to L.A. once for one day and I haven't even read a lot of books that take place in L.A. or watched a lot of movies that take place there besides a lot of like 
older Hollywood stuff. But I, I remember like this book is probably like my when I think about narratives in Los Angeles, this is probably the first thing I think of. And when I saw that movie, I got kind of frustrated because I thought like, no, like there's more like this isn't the yeah. Um, that movie kind of made me love this book more. Yeah, that's really funny. I hadn't really I hadn't really heard anybody else say that before. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. You should read it. It's a really it's it's a really um, it's a really engrossing read. It's something that you could read like over a weekend. Um, I don't know anyone who's read it who didn't really, really love it. I find that very compelling. Caroline, what's your third favorite? So my third favorite book is probably my favorite, favorite piece of contemporary fiction. Um, it's Remainder by Tom McCarthy. And this book, definitely, I have purchased four copies of this book. I currently have none of them because it never gets returned. And I take that as a good thing that it's because everybody I've lent it to has really, really loved it. And a couple people have actually admitted like, oh, I have this book. I don't really want to give it back to you. And I just tell them like, that's okay. If that means if it means that much to you, please keep it. This was Tom McCarthy's first book. And he's written a couple since then that I didn't love as much. I think because this was just such an epic first novel. And it deals a lot with hyper reality. And it actually this book actually ended up inspiring my dissertation in college. Um, my entire dissertation in college was about hyper reality and metafiction in um, film and art. Um, and yeah, the this the story is about well, I, I get so excited about this book. I don't even know how to talk about it to you because without explaining the entire thing. It's about one guy and you never really get to know him. You only get to know this like sort of life that he has created and reenacted for himself in the entire book. It's like a series of reenactments that he is putting on based on experiences that he wants to like he wants to create for himself. It's of all the books that I've ever read. It's probably the one that made me that made me think the most about my decisions as a as a person and my decisions as I don't know. It made, it made me feel, I don't know how to say this. It made me feel like an independent person. It made me, it kind of even like affected my decisions when I moved to New York. And I thought like, cause in this, in this book, this man is just basically like creative, creating like an alternate reality for himself. That's what the entire book is about. And so when I moved to New York, I'd kind of been reading books like this and thought like, okay, like I, I live in my entire, in my own world. If I want to, if I want to basically like create what is essentially like an architectural model in my brain that is a pencil shop in real life. Like, like why can't I do that? Just because that's not thing, a thing that people really do. Like, why can't I do that? And that when I first started the shop, I thought like, no, like I'm making this my reality and I'm creating this. And it's almost a reenactment of every single thing that I've thought about in my brain. Um, and I, when I designed it, I kind of felt almost like I'm designing a stage set for myself. And this book, I think is the thing that kind of got that idea in my brain. Um, and there's actually a movie now that the artist Omar Fast directed that Tom Sturge is in of, of Remainder by Tom McCarthy. And I haven't seen it because it only screened in the U.S. like once and I can't find it online. Oh, no. Yeah. It's a, one of those funny ones where it has a very, very high rating on Rotten Tomatoes by critics, but it's like 30 percent of users liked it. <laughs> um, I'm re- always really interested in movies that are like that, where there's just a humongous disconnect between what critics like and what users like. Agreed. I like to find the books on Goodreads that have like 2.8 star ratings, but a small, loyal band of readers, myself included, love and adore. So yeah, those are the greatest. I love those. We'll see if we can do that for you today. I don't know. Tall task. Okay, Caroline, readers have differing opinions on using the H word around here. 
Do you have a book you hate or would you want to qualify that differently? Um, okay. So I don't, I don't have like a book that I hate the closest that I've gotten, um, is, and I, and I started this like completely expecting to follow it and read the entire series. I don't do well with series though. So I should have known better. My struggle by, I know I'm going to botch his name, Carl Ove Nausgaard. Is that his name? I don't remember. That sounds great to me. And we will put it in show notes if so you all can figure out how to spell it. Yeah. And I I love the concept of these books. I love that it's just a, a guy who's alive, who is basically like writing his life like fiction and publishing it. And that's really cool. But I, I started reading the first one and it's just so tedious. It's so tedious and so drawn out. And I just, and I'm, I'm really interested in like the art of the ordinary and the everyday and like, like studying and knowing about really, really ordinary things or like learning up about people's everyday lives. Like that's, that's even like the genre of art that I like the most. But this book, like I just I just couldn't get into it. That's definitely one that I got about 150 pages into and then just thought like, no, I can't do this anymore. Especially I think it was because like the daunting commitment in the back of my head of like then feeling like I would have to read all of them kind of got to me. But yeah, that's one that I just really wasn't into. So five volume series you so you made it a hundred something pages into volume one yeah it's kind of embarrassing I didn't I didn't even make it through Harry Potter like I can't make it through anything that's a series what is it about it I don't know I think like well I mean granted I was trying to make it through the fourth book of Harry Potter when I was in like fourth grade so I should maybe try again one day that's a really bad example but um I just it just is too much of a commitment and I just like I don't know if I were to find a writer who I really, really connected with who had written a series, I would I would try it at least. Um, If it's like three books or so, that's a little bit less scary than like six. But um, it's I don't know. I think I'm just a little bit too scared of the commitment. I like to have variety in what I'm reading. I try to plan my um, to be read stack and my like future reading list based on um, what I've read last and what's coming before and after it. Um, I think that's what one of the things that gets me really like engaged in reading is by knowing that like the next book I'm reading is going to be really different and it's going to be a different experience and I'm going to feel different things. And I think that's something that I worry about with the series that I'm just going, it's just going to be like reading one like 3000 page book. And that's really scary to me. I'm not a fast reader either. So that's problematic in that sense too. But the one that I've always kind of wanted to read was, um, I read, um, the Shadow in the Wind, is that what it's called? By Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Um, it was I bought it from that that penguin drop cap series that was like a rainbow. And it was alphabetical. Uh, yeah, I bought it at a um tiny bookstore in New Orleans because it was beautiful. It was the it's the red one. It's the Z, so it's the the red one. And um I bought it because I honestly I really wanted to own one of those books because they're gorgeous and I just was trying to pick one that I hadn't read that I didn't know anything about because I, these books are great because the design is so minimalist they have no description on them so I just kind of went off of like what I could read in the couple pages I read and that was a really um, different way of choosing a book than I usually do and I fell in love with it and it is a series and I just haven't read it honestly because a lot of the reviews online are not great. And that really discouraged me. And this is a really embarrassing thing to admit. I hate the cover design of it, of the rest of the series that are not this one in this one amazing Penguin series. I hate it. And I definitely judge a book by its cover because I feel like it's also at least a little bit indicative of like 
what type of book it is or what the vibe is or what like I might feel while reading it. I, I, I think that it's bad to entirely judge a book that way, but I think there are, there are reasons why the covers look a certain way and I want to know why. Um, and I've just been really discouraged by that one. So maybe I'll get into it one day. I keep forgetting that I want to read it. So that's kind of a problem too. I love the shadow of the wind and haven't read the other books yet. And so reading the rest of the series sounds appealing, but you know, I think you said you felt embarrassed that you gave up on my struggle. I'm just thinking of how many books you were able to read because you weren't reading five volumes you were not enjoying. So, and it's hard to know going in if it's going to be worth it. And that's the tension. Caroline, what are you reading right now? Um, I just started Glory by Vladimir Nabokov, which is one I've never read. I've only read the only book of his that I've read is Lolita. And I had a moment a few months ago and I thought like, okay, I think this is a writer I really like. I just haven't tried anything else. And so um, this is one of like the lesser known ones. I read somewhere on the internet that it's a lot of people kind of think it's like a dressed up fiction version of like kind of prerequisite to his memoir that he ended up later writing. Caroline, what do you want more of in your reading life? I kind of want to, I kind of want to cry more. Is that a really weird thing to say? Like I, I want to... I want to read more books that make me feel emotions that I can't describe, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And I like it. Yeah, that's how I've always felt when I read anything that anything Julian Barnes or when I read A Little Life that um, those were two, those are two things that really made me feel that way. And I haven't felt that way reading a book in a really long time. Sometimes I know that book is going to make people cry unless you don't, unless you don't have a heart. But other times it's really interesting to see like what's really, uh, tear jerking to, to other readers. It can be totally different things from one person to another. So completely. Yeah. And for me, it's not even like things that are sad. I can read something really devastating and not cry, but then like there'll be a commercial on television that it's just a matter of like the music being just right. And like, the message being exactly what it needs to be to support all of that. And that like, that'll make me cry or even like a a book that's just written in a way that's so stunning that I just can't, I can't not feel something. Yeah. It's a lot to unpack. It is a lot to unpack, but it's easy to encapsulate like books that deliver in really amazing or unique emotional experience. Okay. Caroline, we'll see what we can do. So you said, you said earlier that you realized at a certain point that your mom's taste was different from your own. And it sounds like that prompted some self-awareness about your taste. Oh, completely. Yeah. How would you describe that? I mean, I'm, I'm first of all grateful that I grew up in a house where my mom was a big reader and um, I had exposure to books, even if they weren't things that I was going to love. Um, I think my mom probably likes books with the, with storylines that are like a little bit conventional. She really likes she really loves reading love stories and she does really like historical fiction. And I feel like my taste fears a little bit on this, well, I don't know. I just think my taste is a little bit more complicated than that. I think that it's, um, for me, it's all about a feeling. I'm just chasing a feeling basically in everything that I read. Um, and yeah, I think it's when I realized that a lot of the books of hers that I was reading just weren't like doing it for me. They just weren't satisfying to me in the way that I was looking for. Um, that's when I realized that I needed to dig a little bit deeper and find writers who I loved who, um, were giving me that and who were giving me complicated stories and giving me complicated characters, especially. I really wanted to read characters who weren't easy to figure out. And I think that's what I was struggling to find in my mom's collection. Yeah, I can see that too. And I don't have as many books to go on as you do, but you've chosen quite a few stories that are very unconventional, often strange, 
a little bit like remainder. I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read enough to know that it is definitely creepy. You've chosen a lot of literary fiction that's very stylistically complex. And if you love books that are charming, earnest, or heartfelt, they are not represented here. (laughs) So I also noticed you kind of threw me with the Nabokov, but most of your books are pretty contemporary. So Kundera's in the 70s, but those other ones were just published in the last 10 years, give or take a few. So what I'm thinking of looking for for you is mostly contemporary, like the past 10 year window, literary fiction. You don't seem to be afraid of going dark. You don't see, I mean, of course a little life makes you cry because you're human, but you don't sound afraid to engage in that kind of story. You're, you welcome that emotional experience. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. You're so good at this. Well, you know, you haven't heard my recommendations yet, so we'll see. We'll see. Oh, and I also get the sense that you're interested by writers doing interesting things on the page, not straightforward stories. You're okay to go experimental. It's okay if it's weird. Mm-hmm. Okay. The first one, it seems likely you will have read. I'm thinking of a book by Kazuo Ishiguro. Have you read anything by him? I haven't. And that's on my list, actually. Okay. I'm thinking Never Let Me Go. Do you know anything about this one? No. Well, I do. I do. And it's always been one that's been on the back burner of ones I want to read, actually. I wish. Is there, is there a movie? There is a movie. And I wish like I wish I hadn't seen the movie trailers before I actually read the book, because I think the best way to go into this book and the way to have like the maximum emotional punch you in the gut experience, because this book will totally do that, is to know nothing. This story, it's about 10-ish years old, which I think is a good window for you. Still totally contemporary fiction. It's set at a British boarding school and it follows this tight, complicated relationship between a boy and two girls. They've grown up as children together at this boarding school. Um, very exclusive, very isolated. They have what seems at the beginning to be like a straightforward British boarding school experience, especially living on this side of the Atlantic. It's easy to me think like, oh, that's how boarding school is. But as the story proceeds, there are hints dropped and references to things that seem a little odd. And become increasingly not just odd, but sinister. And he's he's really great at building this aura of foreboding and fear. And the way he's constructed this world, which is almost like ours, but not like ours, is uh, so powerful. He talks about like friendship and love, but also what it means to be human and our role in that and the choices we make and what people do when they're in impossible situations and how they come to terms with them. I really, really don't want to tell you too much. That's probably obvious, but it's so uh, atmospheric. It's so well done and it's so gut-wrenching. First, you have the emotional experience of dread and fear on behalf of these characters. And I don't mean in a like horror movie kind of way, but in a human being kind of way. Like I, I can't imagine that this could be the rules of this world, that this could be the world that these people could have found themselves in. But as emotional experiences go, I think this one really delivers and that you would connect to that aspect of it. What do you think? That sounds awesome. Um, that's that's definitely a book that I've been meaning to read for a really long time. And I'm also, I keep using the word embarrassment. I'm almost embarrassed that I haven't read it. Um, and I haven't thought about it for a really long time. And you're exactly right. That's exactly the kind of book I would be reading. There are so many good books to read. Don't be embarrassed. But if you did want to read this, like don't do it because you feel embarrassed. But if you feel like, why haven't I read that yet? Then, you know, just jump on in. What do you think about David Mitchell? Um, I 
loved Cloud Atlas. Um, I tried to read the it has a long title. The other one, it's very, it's a very large book. I was thinking the bone clocks. Oh, I haven't read that. That's not the one that I tried to read and didn't like. Okay. Well, I like the bone clocks for you and I believe, shoot, I don't want to cite the ratings as evidence. So you know what? I'm, I'm just not going to, I'm just plenty. It's a David Mitchell no- novel. Like he writes bizarre stuff. Plenty of people abandoned them. But if you are the right audience for this book, then you are the right audience for this book. Yeah. I love Cloud Atlas. I would totally try him again. I hadn't thought about him for a long time. For a while, I'd spent a lot of time defending the Cloud Atlas movie. Um, and yeah, I love his stories. They're, they're, they're really complicated and really eerie and really confusing in a really awesome way. <laughs> See, I think how you follow up the really complicated and confusing. Yeah, you think it's awesome. Everybody else just quits. And some... I want to be surprised. Some reviewers have called him unrelentingly dark, but I don't see that as being a deal breaker for you at all. No. Okay, so this is a really weird story. And Mitchell novels are always hard to describe because they're not like stuff you've usually read. They might not be like anything you've read for story, for like what genre to put them in, for the way he builds his characters. Um, I like this for you because it's contemporary, but it does move speculative. And I'm kind of wondering about that for you. But I think I think it's what it has going may make you like take a little bit of a leap. So he starts in 1984. And he moves linearly through the present day on into the 2040s. So in that sense, not exactly about our present day. He has a whole bunch of stories he's telling from or he has a whole bunch of characters who are telling their stories from the first person. And it's really interesting how the different characters in the novel will pop up in other persons or other people's narratives in ways that you don't expect. You know, you're seeing I love that. I know, I do too. It's really interesting. And it reminds you that the people telling stories might be fictional people, but they're still people in the the good ways and then the limiting ways of that. But there's this one unusual girl. She's a teen. She has this weird special gift because it's a David Mitchell novel. So of course she does. Her name's Holly. And all those different narrative threads in the book that happen through the eyes of different characters, Holly's the linchpin who brings them all together. And um, also the title's cool. It's meaningful. It's a metaphor. You don't discover what it is until you're nearing the end of the book. And this is not like, oh my gosh, like it's blowing my mind. My, my world is made, but it's cool. It's important. So I'm not going to tell you what the title means. And I think this could be one that can make you laugh and cry and get really mad in the span of a hundred pages. How does that sound to you? That sounds amazing. That's yeah, that's an excellent recommendation. You sold that to me very well. Um, I will be going to the strand after work to buy a copy for my unread book stack. Jealous. <laughs> okay. And for book three, have you read any Allie Smith? I haven't. No. Okay. I'm thinking about how to be both, which in some ways, so this is like two books in one almost. I saw one really clever review. Oh, what was it called when it first came out? I think it was called how to read both because she has two parallel narratives going on here. So the first one your mom would love. It's the more or less conventional story of a plucky teenager whose who's brilliant artistic mother has just died. And she's a teenager whose mom just died. And 
you can imagine. So that's one half of the story. But the other half is so weird, I almost don't want to tell you what it is. The other half is really, really weird. Okay, so in that sense, it's very experimental. This is definitely literary fiction, but it's all about art and why it's so important, but not at all in a preachy way. In a very... She lets her characters sell you on that. And it deals with um, art and love and story and issues of time. And in a very, I don't know how you feel about this. I really, really hate it when I feel like an author is preaching at me or getting really didactic or heavy handed. So she deals with gender issues and questions about right and wrong and the mystery surrounding like death and what it means, um, the importance of art. She deals with all these like really big themes that she clearly has thoughts about in a way that's very, she's telling a story and you never feel like she's not telling a story. And I think she kind of echoes Virginia Woolf in an intelligent way, but also in a, it's just, it's really strange, definitely strange. So it's a strange book. It's an interesting one. I think it would be at home with the ones we've talked about so far on a bookshelf how does that sound? That sounds really good. Maybe that's one that I should try to get my mom to read with me. Ooh, do you do that sometimes? Um, we've never really done that before. Not since I was much younger, but um, I've always wanted to do that. Now that as adults, we kind of have a bit of a disconnect in what we read. We don't really even talk about it. And she reads a lot too. And I'd, I'm always kind of on the lookout for books that maybe she would like that I also like. And this sounds like one that um, she can handle a little weird. She likes a little weird. So I think, I think that, yeah, maybe I'll have to send her a copy. That sounds wonderful. I think it's one of those books that has, you read the summary and you go, what? <laughs> I love that. But works. She makes it yeah. work. Caroline, of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? Oh, um, I'll probably read David Mitchell next, to be honest. I need like a really long, I need a really long book. It's been a long time since I read a book that was longer than like 350 pages long. Um, I think, yeah. I think that'll be next. Well, that sounds good to me. Yeah, I think that sounds good. I, I need to I need to really commit to something big. I love everything about that sentiment. Well, that sounds great. Tell the strand I said hello. I will. It was great talking books with you today. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Caroline today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Caroline and let her know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at what should I read next podcast.com slash 99. And it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can visit CW Pencil Enterprise at their brand new location opening early October at 15 Orchard Street in Manhattan's Lower East Side. If an in-person visit isn't in the stars for you, CW Enterprise has a wonderful full-service website where you can order some of the goodies we talked about today. Visit them online at cwpencils.com. And the shop's amazing Instagram account is one of my very favorites. Give it a follow at CW Pencil Enterprise. Readers, if you enjoyed this podcast, I would appreciate it so much if you could rate or even better review it on iTunes. I do not pretend to understand how the Apple algorithms work, but I do know that your ratings and especially your reviews are big factors when it comes to helping What Should I Read Next move up the iTunes charts, and that makes it so much easier for book lovers to find our show. Thanks in advance for taking two minutes to show your support for What Should I Read Next. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. 
Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Vogel and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.